So one of the, I guess, as we're looking at page 122 is where we're going to be. Pull back there and see little notes. It's not the spot. All right. So we, we kind of broached it last week. We, we picked it up to talk about it, which was the objection to the new birth, right, to God coming on, uh, in the, just to define that whole together a little bit, the supernatural work, God's work uh, in, in an individual, in a person, to bring them out of death and into life, to, to move them from, you know, to remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, make them desire the Lord, make them desire Christ. And, of course, as they desire Christ, then they will move toward Christ based upon that work of regeneration or new birth. And we mentioned last week that kind of famous line, regeneration precedes faith. That is, it comes before faith. We don't believe unto new birth. We're born again unto belief. And even if it happens all at once, you know, it's a single event in a person's life, uh, it's still logically prior. That is to say, the new birth logically precedes faith because it's required to be in place before anyone can believe in the first place. That makes sense? Any kind of questions on that? So he's, he's, with that in mind, he kind of says, okay, well, you've got this, this supernatural new birth in, in the Christians, and the objection is, do you really? Right? Do, you, do you really have that, Christians? Are you, uh, you know, do your lives exemplify that you're born anew, that you're a new creature in Christ Jesus? And that's where he kind of starts on page 122. And he, um, he's going he's to contrast, at this point, just to kind of get the lay of the, the, the chapter, he's going to contrast the Christian life, which begins with regeneration, but he, he goes through and says there's more to it than that, and here's the shape of it. He's going to contrast that, the, kind of, uh, the Christian understanding of the Christian life, with a liberal understanding of the Christian life. Right, he's going he's gonna to contrast those two, but firstly, I think he needs to lay out what he means by the Christians are regenerate or born again, and how that factors in, how that works into the overall Christian life. So let's take a look. In fact, you can open the scriptures; it's worth doing to Galatians chapter two, because this is really the text of the appeal to. So Galatians chapter two. And while we're turning there, I'll say, are there any any kind of questions or introductory comments to orient ourselves? Back to this chapter. Right, hearing none, we'll look at Galatians 2. In particular, verse 22. Oh, verse 20, that is. You'll notice the chapter doesn't have 22 verses. It cuts off there at 21. So, here's the text that he's looking at. In, in, in thinking of not just regeneration, not just the work of God to bring us uh, into life from death, but then the process that comes out of that, the work that, that comes out, the life of faith. I have been crucified with Christ. Okay, we have a definitive statement there, right? Christ, Paul is crucified with Christ. He's been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In that first part of the text there, he says, well, this is like the regeneration part. And this, is, this is Christ coming to us in power and changing our lives um, and, and living in us. Christ lives in us by his spirit and gives us the life we share in his life. But then he goes on, and the life that I now live in the flesh, okay, there's a fleshly life now being lived, right, in the current time, present time, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, well, there's a difference between being born of God, 
but then also this living life by faith that we do day by day. The, the, the present reality, the present tense of being a Christian is living by faith, having been crucified with Christ. Having Christ live in us, we now live by faith. And uh, that's, that's at least the, uh, the framework that he, that he puts it in. Um, so the Christian life, this is with the very bottom of 122, the Christian life is a life lived by faith, not by sight. The great change has not yet come to full fruition. Sin has not yet been fully conquered. The beginning of the Christian life is a new birth, not an immediate creation of, the full, of a full-grown man. So this is, this is the beginning. This, this work of grace that makes us alive, makes us aware, uh, not only of, of God and his holiness, God and his absolute, God himself and his, uh, his requirements of, of righteousness in us, but makes us very aware that we're not meeting those requirements. Right? We're not godly. We're not living up to the, the commands of God. Um, which is kind of the first step, and like I think I mentioned last week, going back to like the Great Awakening and stuff, they kind of parsed this sort of thing out because they had so much experience with people coming to conviction over their sins, but not coming to the gospel yet, right? And those are different things. Like having conviction for your sin is is a maybe a, a preliminary move toward toward faith, and um, but it isn't faith, right? It's, it's it, and you guys say it's a little measure of faith. It's agreeing with God that you're unrighteous, okay. Uh, but it's not, as it were, agreeing with God that Christ is yours, and you're his, and he's redeemed you from all of that uh, wickedness and shame and uh, you know, God's recompense against it. So there's a difference between awakening on the one hand and regeneration on the other, but that's not really what Mason's talking about. Mason says, well, there's a difference between being born from the, you know, from the dead on one hand and then growing up in that faith, growing up in Christ. And I think we all see that. I think in our own lives we, we recognize, yeah, there was a beginning point, and maybe some of us it's hard to remember the beginning point, but so at a certain point God put me on this track to know him and to serve him and to love him, and this thing keeps going, right? It's, it's an issue of faith. We're resting in the Son of God who gave himself for us, but we're, we're walking in faith day by day, right? The Christian faith, the Christian life is one of faith. Right? It's one of trusting God from beginning to end, for, both from you know, the justification aspect of trusting Christ and receiving forgiveness of sins in him and, and so on, being reconciled to God, but then also the whole of the Christian life that flows out of that as well, which we call, what's the, the kind of standard theological term for the, the kind of long living of the Christian life and God's work in us through that time? Sure, sanctification. So and he, and he does that, he kind of lists them and says, okay, we have new birth and we have justification and we have adoption and we have sanctification and finally we have glorification. That's the, that's the kind of whole ball of wax of salvation. So, to look at a Christian, or Christian, to look at yourself, or maybe charitably look to look at one another, uh, God has begun a good work in us that he'll bring to completion. And so, to look at a Christian and say, well, you're not complete yet. You're still a sinner. You still struggle with this, maybe even some of the same sins you've struggled with for years. Uh, we say, I know. But... I died in Christ, and he lives in me, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's, there's this reality of living in faith, still trusting Jesus, even though the work is not yet complete in us. Um, but it's being completed, and that God will complete the work that he's started as well. Um, he ties it into love and hope, which we can do in, in a moment, but that's kind of, kind of pause for questions. Just on this, like, on this view of, of salvation, um, 
that encompasses, I think, what the Bible teaches around justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, kind of parsing out the, the whole of salvation in, in those different terms that have to do with different aspects or different uh, but related parts of salvation is, is helpful for us. And uh, I just submit there, I remember talking to some folks in school that had really no idea of these designations and had it all messed up. They're like, you know, thinking, okay, well, I guess God says I'm holy, so no, I'm really holy in myself right now, totally. Right? It's like, well, no, 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 no. Your holiness is before God and in covenant and so on, and it grows in the personal sanctification, personal holiness. Um, you know, anyway, it, it helps to have biblical categories in mind so as not to mess everything up, which is easy to do uh, if you get it confused. So I had a question over here. Paul speaks of, uh, uh, he testifies of his conversion. It was bang. Totally, yeah. doesn't really describe um, the various what you call it, steps along the way of, a, of, of an elect person from infancy to uh, being born again and having the spirit and, and knowing that, yep. knowing it for sure. He doesn't really describe that, that because there's definitely those at least two classes of people that I know of, if not more. Sure. Or you think How of Timothy. That happen? I mean, where? Yeah. And are you, I don't know if, you're, if Machen's addressing any of that, or if he's just, uh, it's more uh, making a solid point here along the way and not anything in between. So his, I, I think Machen's point is, is the, the pretty simple one of, if you're looking at Christians, you might not notice that they're redeemed. Uh, but that falls within the biblical framework of redemption, not that you would never know so there would be no fruit, but that there's this reality that moves us forward in time. And, and the reality is, and that's kind of important on page 123, is he says faith working through love. And he says faith really is, is saying doing something by faith is another way of saying doing nothing. <laughs> he puts it that way. Because faith is just an open reception. We're not doing anything by faith, but faith works by love. And the whole reality is the Holy Spirit drives all of that, right? The Holy Spirit gives us the faith, the Holy Spirit gives us the love, and, and, and grows us in Christ and after this. So he's looking at this kind of Christian life, and someone from the outside might say, sorry, you think you got this spiritual, like, supernatural reality, but it sure doesn't look to me like you do. And Nathan's saying, well, you're not looking at it the right way. You're not looking at it the, the correct way. And here's the biblical way to look at it, which makes room for all these parts, right? Sure. Oh, yeah, we get used to that. And sometimes the pot's right, you know, when it comes to it, the, about the kettle. Yeah, well, sometimes it's your own self calling that, too. Absolutely. I remember struggling just being like, okay, if I don't have enough faith or whatever to overcome this particular setting, then how do I know I have enough, you know, enough faith to be saved? I mean, you know, if my faith isn't, isn't active, it isn't overcoming this, how do you know it's a saving faith? Totally. And I think that's way more, um, way more of a challenge than an outsider. Okay, now you're saying, well, even though that maybe has its own problems, too. But, it, but partially because it enters into your own mind. So, okay, well, is my faith really real? Right? Am I really reborn? Is this something God's really doing? Or am I pretending uh, this is going on or just hoping for the best or trying real hard or whatever, right? This, is this a supernatural work? Has God done something? Um, and I think that's, those are questions we all need to ask ourselves, probably with some frequency. 
even around the table and come and say, okay, well, it doesn't have to do with what I've done. It has to do with what Christ has done on my back. You know, so looking outward, and uh, the table helps us do that. Hopefully the preaching of the gospel helps us do that as well. But we can't spend too much time in introspection without having to look out. So, and sometimes, you know, God gives those gifts where, you know, you look, it's like you're getting here. You're sick on Tuesday, and the Thursday rolls around, and say, oh, I'm not sick anymore. Right? God gave some healing there that I didn't even notice until after the fact, and barely noticed then. And oftentimes, our sanctification is that way. God removes things or gives things where, man, it takes us a little while even to, like, get clear on what he's giving, right? Uh, and so on. Anyway, so that's part of the mystery and, and the reality of the Christian life is what, um, I guess, read the end of it. And I think the hope and love part are important. Um, but I want to I want to get this done, <laughs> so we can move on. Uh, but he, I love how he moves in hope and love into the Christian life, and how those are, you know, faith, hope, and love are the three cardinal, um, you know, attributes of a Christian, right? And the greatest of these is love. So um, to see him kind of work that out and say, this is how the Christian life works, and it works in love. The Holy Spirit works love in us, and it's also an issue of hope. Right? We're looking forward to something as Christians. We're not there yet, and that hope is an important factor for us, which I think is so true. I think uh, having an eschatology, some kind of end-time doctrine that is, you know, that encourages you because God's not done, and he's going to complete this work. He's going to complete the work, not just in you, which is awesome, and not just in me, but in us and in the whole world. Right? He's going to do something, and whether that's on this side of his, you know, Christ's coming physically or on the other side or both, it is, right? However Christ is going to win this thing, he's going to win it, and that ought to encourage us. So there's something about hope and love that are very important. On page 125, he has a transition here, and this is helpful. This is what we're transitioning from the Christian, kind of, the Christian view of the Christian life, or the biblical view of the Christian life, to the liberal view of the Christian life, and now how they're different. What's, what's going on there? So this first paragraph on page 125 It says, and this is after kind of talking through what we've just talked through, such is the Christian life. It is a life of conflict, but is also a life of hope. It views this world under the aspect of eternity. The fashion of this world passeth away, but all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's kind of a summary of the Christian life. Okay, we're here. These things aren't uh, aren't permanent in the same way that eternal realities are permanent, and we press toward we press toward that, and uh, we all must stand before the judgment of God, the judgment seat of Christ. That's okay, the Christian life kind of in a nutshell. Very different is the program of the modern liberal church. In that program, heaven has little place, and this world really uh, is really all in all. So uh, to get both together, what he's, what he's doing is saying the Christian looks at this world as is important but transient. Right, the, the eternal realities are the things that are the, the the most important and give shape to how we deal with things here. The liberal, not so. Right? The liberal is a different situation uh, where this world takes precedent. What's going on here is is really the most important thing, and eternity is not so important. And I think that's easy to see a slip like that. And it's easy for us to get our hands on things and think, yeah, this this is the important stuff here. Um, how I feel or how our relationships are, and, and say, so, well, those are important, but are they the most important thing? And if they're not, how do they fall in line with the most important thing? There is glorifying God and enjoying Him forever helps us, guides us in how to love each other. 
Right? If we don't have loving God and, and being happy in Him forever, then we really lose track of the earthly things too, which is kind of the point of, this, of the chapter here. So the first thing, well, he runs through the religious utility of things. Right? How, how religion is useful in all these different areas. And, you know, so again, think of America a hundred years ago, best you can, what's going on. But the, the, the things that he pulls together here, like on page 125, is immigration. You know, hey, as a nation, we really want to bring these immigrants in and, and, and bring them into the fabric of American society. And you know, what better to do that than religion? Religion helps, you know, that, right? That's, that's the idea there, uh, to get a unified American people. He, he goes through labor relations. And I was in the Teamsters for a number of years. I get that. Uh, labor relations can be difficult. Um, but, you know, it's, it's Christianity that's going to come and, 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 and make labor relations savor. I remember reading Ruth, uh, where Boaz goes up to his, uh, his workers and he says, Yahweh bless you. And they say, Yahweh be with you. And uh, listening to, uh, reading a sermon from, uh, oh, come on. This is the godfather of uh, Bible Presbyterianism. Carl McIntyre, listening to reading a sermon from Carl McIntyre, and he says, well, if we had labor relations like this, we wouldn't have any problems. And I think, yeah, I think you're probably right, or we'd certainly cut down on enormous amounts of problems if I can bless the management in the name of God, and they can bless the workers in the name of God, and they can find some, you bet. That's, that's the kind of idea here. Oh, well, that's what we need. Right? We need Christianity that's going to kind of oil the, uh, oil the gears here and make things work better on this planet. International relations, same thing. Right, we got problems with the, the militaristic Japanese, or we have problems with the, uh, uh, the, the saber-rattling Germans, right, just after World War I, uh, the problems there. And say, well, if we had Christianity here, it would, it would make things better, right? So it's this, this idea of the utility of Christianity, that it works and helps in these different areas of life. Um, and he even gets down to missions. He ends the chapter with missions, too, and that, I got kind of keen on that, since missions is really the uh, presentation issue that, that makes the Presbyterian Church and Machen break is the, is the missions issue. But he says, you know, 50 years ago, so thinking like 1872, um, he says, missionaries made their appeal in light of eternity. Millions of men, they were accustomed to say, are going down to eternal destruction. Jesus is a Savior sufficient for all. Let us uh, send us, therefore, with the message of salvation while there is still time. That's kind of characterizing missions of 50 years before as opposed to, um, you know, we need to go to India because we need Christian stability in that, in that, um, in that part of the world. Or Bolshevism, he says, uh, the communism is taking over, and we need Christians, uh, Christianity is the antidote to that social, political, economic problem. Right? It's not saving men's souls. It's kind of orienting men to this world a little better so that we can get along better. Right? Um, it's, 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 it's just the same thing as your, your best life now, except your best life now is very selfish in that sense. This is like the world's best life now. What can we do as Christians? Ah, it's a little better. It's a little less selfish anyway. But as Mason comes around, and we can just draw it together here. Um, if there is no Christianity to apply, then you don't get applied Christianity. Right? You've got you to have the real gospel of salvation before a holy God. And, uh, and being oriented toward him in order to have the benefits of Christianity. You don't get the benefits without the heart of the thing. And I think that's the, the main thing that he's after in this little section, is you have to have a fulsome, faithful Christianity in order to enjoy the benefits of Christianity. You don't order up the benefits and leave the Christianity behind. And I think that's what he's accusing the liberals of, of doing, is trying to have the benefits of the thing without having the thing at all at the end of the day. So, any any thoughts or questions on that? I think that's super applicable. Um, even just in our own lives personally, 
but it's Christianity is and that's the next step. Christianity is not just individual, but social. This is compatible, you know, the, the, the connection we have with other people, and that's undeniable and important. Um, though I think that could use some development next. But anyway, on, the, on this one, as far as the utility of Christianity, any thoughts or ideas here? Yeah. That's true. Yeah, I mean, at some point, whatever, wherever the church errs and gets off course, it's going to get off course from the appropriate course that it had, you know, ideally to begin with. Um, so, yeah, the uh, our, our stability uh, week to week and generation to generation is definitely in God to keep and maintain this church. Our job to try to maintain that message, and I think one of the great messages of this book is that the gospel is a message about something God has done in history. That's kind of, he keeps pointing back, it's not, it's not its effect on us, it does affect us. It's not its effect on society, it does affect society, but it is, it is a message about something God has done in history. Uh, something been accomplished by Christ in history that is now applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Um, so anyway, this getting at utilizing Christianity, I mean, I, I, I sense that, and it's, I don't know what to do. Um, there's a, a group here for maybe the last year and a half or more, I don't know, that's uh, tried to get the churches in Scapoos to come together and help with the schools and the school lunches and I don't know what the different things here in the, in the school system and say, okay, well, you churches, would you help us do this? And on the one hand, you want to say, yeah, absolutely. We'd love to help you feed and whatever else. Um, and But on the other hand, are we doing it as... Christians? Is there, is there a Christian reality here that we're bringing to the table, or is it kind of just us quietly going along and helping people? And I don't mind quietly going along and helping people, but at the same time, if you're going to ask a bunch of churches in Christ's name to come help, maybe you should offer them a venue to do what they do at the same time, right? Uh, and so I, I get, they, they want, the, in other words, I think the, the school district here in Scapus wants the utility and power of the churches without the church itself, without the message, without the stuff that the church brings along with it. Um, and so mostly I say no. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to help, but I'm not interested to help under those conditions so much. Though other other, other Christians are, um, other pastors are as well. So um, anyway, that's, to me it's a little bit of a quandary how to address something like that. Not only just as an individual Christian, but I think as, the, as a visible leader of the church also, what that means and, and so on. So those kind of levels of difficulty built into the thing. Um, but it's, it's a similar sort of issue here. The utility, making use of Christian charity, making use of Christian uh, moral concerns, making use of Christian power and money, um, but trying to make sure you make use of it without Christianity itself. We don't want that. We just want the fruits of it. Okay, well, that's, that's exactly what Mason's after 100 years ago. And you can go back 100 years before that, and 100 years before that, and 100 years before that, and have the same sorts of difficulties of how the church relates to, and how Christians individually, but how the church relates to the needs of society. And we have to. That's part of our, our service is service to the world, but how best to do it, and how to do it as Christians. You know, And maybe another little flip on that one. Uh, I think I've mentioned it before, but... Um, I'm trying to remember the author's name. It's, the name of the book is Down and Out in Paris and London. But he, he talks about, it's um, Orwell. It's George Orwell. Um, he, he talks about having been on the streets and having received charity in these different kinds of contexts and how much hatred and, and disdain 
the people have for having to earn their charity by like sitting through a service or doing that kind of thing that it, it instills in him, his heart, his complete hatred for these people who are trying to help, but they're trying to help in a way that demeans or a way that does something to them that they don't like. Um, anyway, I think that's just a thought that, that I was, as far as Christians and how we help people in the church and how we help people and, and what we really offer. Because at the end of the day, sure, we, we don't just say be warmed and fed and turn them away, uh, but we have something more to give them than a coat and a meal, right? Uh, but along with that coat and meal, we have something. So anyway, kind of balancing all that is, is not easy to do. Yeah. Kim? Yeah, I'm just going to bring this up kind of as a prayer request, even. Just, um, this is kind of a struggle like this in the pregnancy navigate that at CPC and yeah so we got I think lead with in the name of Jesus Christ his piece of chicken you know uh, <laughs> we're operating in the power and, and authority and auspices of Jesus Christ and we're doing these things loving each other to give that not not as a burden to people but as a as a gift so yeah I'm happy to pray for that I think it's a struggle in Christian organizations yeah Yeah, right. Good question. And it, so it's one thing, I guess, maybe to think of it in, in terms of 100 years ago and what's going on then. But it seems like the church is always doing something like this, right? It's, it's in some part of the sequence or process of falling away or being brought back in some kind of reformation. Um, but I think you put your finger on it that, first of all, the message of the gospel is offensive. We have an offense to offer in that sense uh, every time. And to leave off that offense, and if you, kinda, if, you, if you are kind of grabbing on this, like, the really naturalistic kind of, you know, what we really have is this world, um, matter and, and energy, and that's kind of all we really have. Beyond that, we don't really know. You start to cut everything out, and then you have this empty shell. But the empty shell is useful. It's useful because it pays me money. That's the first part. I don't forget that. Uh, there's money to be had from staying in the church, but there's also an apparatus here to do things and help people. And, and hey, you show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith with works. Look at them over here, everybody. See what I'm doing? So all, all that stuff kind of, I think, flows along. And, yeah, it, it's not very long before you're downstream quite a bit and uh, doing things as Christians that really aren't, I mean, maybe as far as the practical things go, maybe they're helpful and all that. But, you know, the doctrine of what's being taught and what's being preached Far from right, historic Christianity and from what the Bible teaches, which of course is Mason sounding the alarm, saying, "Hey, this has already happened here." Uh, and uh, yeah, so one one uh, he brings the terminology up at the end, the social gospel. I'm sure you've heard that before. What is the social gospel? Kind of ties in with what we're talking about here. You know the name Walter Rauschenbusch? Yeah, <laughs> cursed with the last name Rauschenbusch. Um, but anyway, he's a, he's a major player, in the, I think, in the late 19th century. As far as this, this very thing of saying, okay, well, Christianity needs to impact 
society, and that's where the emphasis comes, right, and, and the way that uh, social issues are taken care of in the gospel or in the Christian church and the ministry of it. Not so much this doctrinal Christianity that we've had in the past, but really focusing on the practical impact of Christians in society, and, and kind of that really substituting for the gospel. Your good works and the good works of the church substituting, really, for the good works of Christ on our behalf. Something along those lines. Um, and that's, there's the easy shift that direction. And, and you see it in third world countries in different ways, too, in liberation theology. Kind of similar sorts of things. And they're all wrapped around this very same thing that Mason's talking about, where the point of Christianity is not the other world to come, but really this world now. Right? And, and of course, you'd say, well, this world now is important, but it's important in light of eternity. And that's the kind of Christian reality of it that we have to keep in, in hand and not lose track of. Um, so we want to do those smaller things, uh, but also do the weightier matters of the law. Uh, you should have done those without you know, leaving the others undone sort of thing. right? You've got to do it all, but kind of keeping it in the right, in the right shape, the right form. And we've got one more little section in a few minutes. Any, any more questions or thoughts on really what is yeah, the, the utility of Christianity or the social gospel or the ways in which our actions in society... Uh, or, our, you know, present ourselves as Christians to help other people becomes the tail wagging the dog. It becomes the thing as opposed to the gospel and our reception of Christ and our glorying in him and therefore being faithful to those who are around us in, in those capacities. I think the social gospel is definitely, it's always existed and even today is probably more so even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so like whatever woke churches, you know, if that's, if that's something... I read that it is. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's kind of another example of saying, hey, we got this notion of what justice is, totally, you know, taken apart from the Bible, but we're going to pursue these goals, this social kind of stuff. I think it's very similar as far as the impulse. Um, and, to, and to kind of despise historic Christianity in the meantime. I think that's another dimension of the same thing, both 100 years ago with the liberals and currently today with, uh, with really the woke folk. That's a nice one, the woke folk. Yeah. Yeah. Let me sure repeat that one on Facebook. Yeah. I think it can be really subtle as well. Think, you know, a lot of churches do. You know, they see a need in the community, kind of like the whole thing you're talking about with the Scapu School District. You know, oh yeah, let's go and do the work of Christ by feeding and, uh, the hungry, clothing the connected, and so forth. And they they buy it. it as you were saying, it kind of replaces the actual gospel because they they believe they're preaching the gospel with their actions. Sure. And it's not even that they've gone woke or you know gone way off the rails. It's just that mindset of we we need to love as Christ loved, but then they cave in dropping off, not being able to claim. Yeah. The trueness and the fullness of his love that came to die. I mean, yeah. yeah, like saying that I never liked it, but preach the gospel if necessary, use words. I mean, I've never liked that. I've never known why, but I think that's wise. Like, yeah, we're just going to live our lives, right? And, but no, the gospel, the power is in the gospel. The power is in the word. You know, it's like it's in the story. Yeah. And, without a word sort of thing. There's a, there's a place there, particularly, I think, in those long relationships uh, where, you know, I don't know, that, that quality of life is supremely important. 
Uh, but there's no gospel without a message. We have a message. Yeah, Vicky. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's a challenge. I mean, we, I think I think we can see the challenge easily enough with say J Dubs or maybe liberal social gospel churches, where it's like their preaching's empty, they got nothing going, but they're involved in all these things. Uh, and I say J Dubs, and they're doing their works right. They're plugging down the road. The Mormons too. Um, they're doing their good works, uh, and what they think of that, uh, anyway, I think is probably misguided entirely. But we have our own way of doing that as well, right? We have we have ways that uh, um, yeah, we can dismiss the truth or, or move off into things that are really applications or you know of, of Christianity and and get tied up in that. And sometimes we do it with theology, right? You got to you know, like my my good work that gets me into heaven is a, a correct theology, right? Uh, watch out for that. I think that's something in our circles that's closer to a problem than hey, look at how much work I did over here at you know this bazaar for you know. One-armed, whatever uh, that you can say. Oh, here's some good works for you, you know, sort of thing. And and also, uh, as we'll maybe kind of consider a little later this morning, uh, Americanism, our our little spot in the world, and what we think of it, and how deeply important to us our country is, and the, kind of the freedoms and the shape of the of things. We say, well, that's we want we want to see that perpetuated, right? Wouldn't you like to see the freedoms of America perpetuated down to your grandchildren and great grandchildren? Well, that's, there's something of value there, maybe, right? I think we can all agree there's something there. But there are also many pitfalls there. Um, yeah, the God and country thing's tough. It's not an easy one to navigate, and you can get it with, um, with like, a liberal or, a, you know, a modernist sort of slant to it, but you can also get it with a conservative slant to it, and they both tend to cut the same direction. Right? It's Christ and America. It's Christ and our political freedoms. And how can we preach the gospel if we don't have freedom of speech? Well, you open your mouth and you preach the gospel and you suffer the consequences, just like Christians have all below these long years. We, uh, yeah. So, anyway, I mentioned that because I think there, there are things that sneak into our patterns of thought and our values that have similar kind of derailing, uh, you know, distracting sort of uh, effects. It's just easier for us to see with the goofy liberals. Or even, even easier a hundred years ago. It's, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I see what they're doing. We have a harder time seeing it in our own context and in our own hearts. That's the harder part to see it. Okay. Yes? I wonder, like, going into the school, so do you go and say, yeah, we're going to do this, and then you just go ahead and you do the Gospels, and then they say, you got me? I mean, it's like, is that, like, the way to do that, or <laughs> you just 
just go in knowing that you have to do the preach the gospel and you can't use words. You know? Right. So, in that sense, the question is, do you go in with intent to deceive? Say, sure, I'll do what you want, and then just do what I want when I'm there. Uh, or do you, do you agree to something and stay by that agreement? Um, that, that's a good question. I don't necessarily have an answer for it. It seems like there's, a, there's, there's arguments we made on both sides, and the, the context seems like it's going to determine so much of if you're going to be faithful. Um, but generally speaking, I think if we make contracts, uh, verbal or, or you know, written or whatever, that we're not going to preach the gospel, we're probably on the wrong track. Right? We're probably moving down the wrong track. We're agreeing that we're not going to preach the gospel, unless we're doing so completely out of deception. Right? I think, and I think there are places for that. Sure. I'm going to come in here. Oh, nope, we're not distributing Bibles. We're doing this. And you distribute Bibles. Okay? God bless them. Go why and, and get those Bibles distributed. Uh, that's a different sort of thing, maybe, than operating in the Scapa School District. Right? There are similar parts to it, but anyway, you have to parse it out, and it's, it's not easy to do. Um, anyway. Hopefully that opens a whole like, you know, ball of wax and, you know, whatever, barrel of monkeys. Okay, the last thing is, we maybe have a minute to go over this, is the, the end of it. So Christianity, individual, and social. Um, so Mason's kind of making the argument that, hey, you know, Christianity really is, that it's based on a, a, a person before God, right? A sinner before a holy God and Christ the mediator between them. You bet. That's an important factor that really, he says, the liberals make very little of. The individual, like, reality of a, a sinner before a holy God doesn't get a whole lot of airtime um, from liberal pulpits. Why do you suppose that is? Why, and it ties in with what we were just talking about as far as emphasis and values. But, you know, why, why, why does Mason say that, you know, when it comes down to this, the, what, he, what he calls kind of the fundamental reality of a sinner before a holy God and how God saves us, that doesn't really get airtime. That's not really important to the modernist. Any thoughts on that one? Why that might be? Sure, darling. Yeah, especially when that belief is I'm a wretch, and you know, and uh, God in my in my flesh, in me, God's, you know, I'm under God's wrath, but in Christ Jesus. So yeah, the message is easier to countenance and, and deal with, um, and the supernaturalism of the one, right? If we're saying yeah, individual people must be met by Holy Almighty God in their very lives, and they must be changed by Him and His Spirit, we're we're assuming a lot of kind of supernaturalistic work and so on that. No, uh, those, those modernists aren't really down with. They don't really like that. They they try to avoid that kind of thing. And the, the social thing, that's that's a lot easier to get your your hands on. That's a lot easier without a bunch of supernaturalistic baggage to just say, yeah, we're we're a club of people that want to help people, kind of like the Unitarians or whatever else, or maybe the Rotary Club. Um, you know, we we just want to help. We're here to help, and uh, we want to help you, and, and so on. So that, that line, there is no applied Christianity unless there is Christianity to apply, I think is an important one. It, it rounds out the end of this chapter nicely. It's like, well, we need Christianity, and then we like the fruits of Christianity. We like that, and we want that, but if we're just aiming at the fruits without the Christianity, we're going to lose both. Um, and that's that's kind of seems like it's the major, for the last half of this chapter, what, he, what he's getting at. The doctrine of salvation is like, hey, we've got to have a faithful doctrine of salvation, which also means we have to have a faithful doctrine of God and the Bible and everything else he's kind of gone through. And this next, Lord, Lord willing, the next week, uh, it's a, a relatively short chapter, but we may get through it, may not. The last chapter on the church brings all this together. 
Right? It brings the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, uh, the doctrine of you know, Christ and, and salvation into what the church is as a minister of that to the world, as opposed to, um, you know, a people helping people uh, sort of club that, uh, that we might otherwise see in the church and what it can devolve into. So any closing thoughts or questions? All right, good job getting through this one without the uh, notes, most of you. And, uh, we'll, uh, we'll make sure that there are notes early in the week here so you can enjoy your read through the last chapter of Matthew, which I think is a good chapter, uh, summarizing all this. So let's, let's have a word of prayer and, and some coffee.